All right. <clears throat> now, it's a, we're, today we're going to be covering the, the high Middle Ages. So this is going to be the, the, the kind of the second half, if you will, of, the, of that period, that really long period of time. Can you go to the next slide, please? So you got that really long time, just a, just a little bit before 500 all the way up to 1500 that's kind of de- termed the Middle Ages. We're kind of going to be covering that second half of it right up until about 1500. Um, and that'll actually include, just as a teaser, um, that'll actually include uh, a couple of your, your early, early, early reformers. And we'll, co- we'll cover a couple of those guys today. But it's a common belief that the Middle Ages was a truly horrible time in history with basically no redeeming qualities. Uh, but the more we examine it, the more we realize just how rich some of the theology was and how important many of the people and events of this period of time are. Uh, the centuries from 950 uh, A.D. to 1500 witnessed some fearsome conflicts between the emperor and the pope, between church leaders and political authorities, and even between empires. Uh, by this time, the church as an institution is poised to step in and fill political voids and to shape things at every level of Western European life, from the activities of a peasant to the decisions of a king, and even shaping the borders of nations and empires. Uh, this history is also instructive today as we try to discern the proper relationship between earthly authorities and heavenly authorities. So think church-state, church government kinds of things. That's going to be a common theme that we're going to see throughout this period of history. Uh, Schuyler covered last week the rise of Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and Charlemagne united much of Western Europe, building that, building that empire. Uh, however, almost as soon as he had succeeded in uniting, Euro- uniting Europe under his rule, a new wave of invasions began to flood the continent in the 800s and 900s. So you have Vikings from the north, Muslims from the south, Hungarians coming in from the east, attacking and trying to tear this this fledgling empire apart. Can you go to the next slide? Over time, Charlemagne's empire dissolved into numerous smaller kingdoms controlled by local barons and nobles. And you've got to get a sense here, there's very little of a unifying single whole. Although that doesn't mean that the Holy Roman Empire wasn't there, it's just that in terms, functionally, the way things worked, uh, things were very fractured. The common people stopped looking to the emperor for protection, uh, but they were looking instead to their more accessible and efficient local lords and church leaders, who, as a result, siphoned away power from the imperial crown as feudalism took hold and became the social structure of Western Europe. Uh, during these two centuries, the Christian faith also experienced a geographic expansion, unlike any it had seen before or would see again for several centuries. Uh, just as the barbarian invaders of Rome had embraced the Christian religion, uh, now, new, now missionaries began preaching in the lands from which these invaders came uh, to ravage Europe. So in a short time, almost all of Scandinavia, that would be Denmark, Norway, most of Sweden, uh, had come under the Christian name. Uh, Christianity also made great strides in lands such as Iceland, Russia, and Hungary. And there's even a Muslim tribe known in Mesopotamia to have, to have embraced the Christian faith. As it spread out, it also spread inward. Uh, the church as an institution became thoroughly enmeshed in the culture, establishing itself as a crucial part of society, uh, politically, economically, and culturally. Now, the, the political and e- economic system of the late Middle Ages was feudalism. Can you go to the next slide? 
Feudalism was a system in which people were given land and protection by people of higher rank and who were expected to be loyal workers and soldiers in return. Power and wealth were closely linked to the land. So the land came down from the top, and as a result of that land being given, it was expected that loyalty would go up from the bottom, uh, up through the, the lords and nobles and the kings. The institutional church was deeply enmeshed in this system, with many of the priests and bishops functioning in the tier with nobles and lords. Uh, Both individual churchmen, such as bishops, and organizations, such as monasteries, were rich landowners who wielded great power as a result. So, for example, a monastery could own land, and those who farmed the land were paying not a local lord, but the monastery, increasing that monastery's wealth and power. The church obtained its land from kings and nobles who granted it to them in a bid to control the church uh, through engendered loyalty. As a result, the institutional church was not well during the 9th and 10th centuries as the focus shifted from ministering the gospel to maintaining power. Here's how it worked. The king or baron or noble who owned the land would grant or invest a property to a priest or bishop as a way of getting that church leader a position of religious authority. And so religious appointments were being given by the secular government and not by congregations or by the church. The old issue of the relative powers of state and church was reappearing, and the confrontation was inevitable. The Pope wasn't about to to, uh, stand for local warlords deciding who is going to minister to the flock. Um, And so that that set up a conflict between the local lords who were trying to kind of gain control through the granting of land, and the Pope who was trying to maintain control by, if you will, the granting of faith in, in some, some sense. Uh, historically, this was known as the investiture controversy, because the, the Lord, lords were trying to invest land, and by that investing, they were trying to maintain control. Uh, in this way, many clerics gained wealth through accumulating these properties, uh, as well as monasteries and other places also gained great wealth, but they also lost their authority as independent ministers of God. Meanwhile, lords claimed the right to appoint bishops to their lands, uh, and even lesser nobles usurped the authority of appointing parish priests within their domains. Again, it's all connected to, it's my land, I can decide who does what on my land. Um, the practice brought many problems. Political leaders often selected clergy based more on uh, cynical expediency than on spiritual fidelity. There was also a practice called simony, which was, was closely related to this idea of investiture. Um, it was also common. The difference here is that simony was the practice of buying or selling the, the different religious appointments rather than granting them as a, as a bid to get loyalty. The term simony, interestingly enough, comes from uh, Simon Magus in Acts, who, who thought he could buy gospel power from Peter. So it's a, that's where the term comes from. Now, late in this period of history, so more towards the, the 15th century, um, we begin to see the, the period of the Renaissance starting growing up. And the Renaissance brought a revival of classical thinking and a reorganization of the social structure that had been established by feudalism through commerce, inventions such as Gutenberg's printing press, and it would also bring with it the re-examination of what true religion is and a willingness to challenge the power of a corrupt church. Uh, we're going to get to that more at the end as we start to see the beginnings and the seeds of the Reformation. Uh, can you go to the next slide, please? <clears throat> 
So kind of backing up a little bit and seeing more where we were, where we're coming from, from a, a cultural and a political perspective, uh, what we're going to see is we got two worlds that are on collision course. I mentioned a moment ago that you have the popes on the one hand and you have the emperors on the other who are both kind of vying for control of Western Europe in various kinds of ways. So during the 10th and 11th uh, centuries, a bitter struggle issue, ensued between the Holy Roman emperors who held that they had the power to appoint popes, and the church leaders themselves, who cited centuries of precedent in their claim to that same authority. For decades, popes and antipopes were appointed and deposed with staggering frequency, all of them claiming to be the legitimate successor of the chair of Peter. Sometimes as many as three at once were were vying for power. The powerful popes of the early Middle Ages that Schuyler covered last week uh, by this time had given away to weak popes with little, that were little more than puppets of the powerful Roman families. We're going to go through a few examples of these, kind of the primary tensions, tension points that we saw uh, in, in the middle of history. The first one is Henry III. Uh, that he was the, the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. And then there was Pope Leo IX. Uh, in the middle of the turmoil, Henry III became emperor and he determined that he was going to put a stop to this papal tug-of-war uh, in Rome. Because this would be a time when we have multiple popes uh, trying to vie for power. In 1049, he convened a synod in Germany. So this is one of those kind of council-type meetings that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, he convened a synod in Germany and strong-armed the resignation or deposition of all three rival popes. And sponsored the election of Leo IX to the papal throne. But uh, Leo had no intention of being a puppet of the emperor and refused to take the office until his, until his election was confirmed by the clergy and the people of Rome as a way of refusing to allow the papacy to be contro- controlled by the emperor. In fact, he actually walked, he dressed himself in, in uh, uh, common clothes and instead of like riding in a carriage from where he was appointed somewhere in Europe, I forget where, to Rome, he uh, uh, walked the whole way in beggar's robes uh, as, a, as kind of a protest against the whole idea that he could be appointed by somebody else, appointed by the, Roman, by the uh, Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, when he died in 1059, a new pope was, was uh, in power by that stage, Nicholas II, and he issued the papal election decree, which declared that from, then, from thenceforth the cardinals, which were a select group of bishops, would be, de- would be the ones to designate um, who was going to be the new pope. So they would elect that pope. Now that wasn't really completely in place until later, but this is where you started to have what, if you guys have watched over the years, the election of a pope, you have this big uh, um, collection of, of cardinals that comes together in Rome and elects a new pope. It's often a big deal in the news when it happens. Um, so after Nicholas uh, uh, issued this decree... Um, uh, well, sorry, one, before, we, before we go there, Nicholas's action wasn't actually masterminded by him. He wasn't actually all that savvy of a guy. Uh, it was, it was uh, masterminded by an archdeacon of the church in Rome. His name was Hildebrand. Hildebrand was widely influential in Rome throughout the reigns of more than one pope and carried out his agenda with unbending diligence. Now, his agenda was to reform this, this, the, the idea of the papacy and try to reclaim some of the power that the papacy had had in the early Middle Ages. Uh, Hildebrand actually became pope in 1073 and took the title Gregory VII. 
Over the course of his 12-year tenure, Gregory would continue to make papal power unrivaled as he successfully sought to rescue the papacy from servitude uh, to the warlords in Italy. He proclaimed the rights and dignities of the Pope more forcefully than anyone had before him. Uh, The papal decree of 1075 stated that no one can judge the Pope, that the Pope alone can appoint and depose bishops, that he can depose kings and emperors, and that his rule extends over earthly rulers who must kiss his feet when they approach him. Oh, and that all popes, including himself naturally, are automatically saints. Gregory's pronouncements were a declaration of war against the practice of investiture, and the same year that he issues them, he deposed and excommunicated the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV for trying to overrule the papal choice for the Bishop of Milan. Uh, Henry responded by deposing the Pope, suggesting that he go and be damned. Gregory secured the alliance of the allegiance of many lords, however, and the emperor was forced to visit him in disgrace in 1076, made to stand bare feet in the snow for three days before being allowed inside to kiss the papal foot. Uh, Never had the Pope stood so unassailably superior to the secular prince, and though the great Pope would die in exile in, in 1085, apparently a defeated man, this moment would remain a point of great pride for popes for centuries to come. Uh, After the death of Gregory VII, several powerful popes filled his position, such that the 12th and 13th centuries saw the papacy reach its pinnacle of authority. The greatest of these, and arguably the most powerful pope, was Innocent III, who reigned from 1198 to 1216. Innocent further solidified the pope's claim to absolute spiritual authority, he declared that the successor of Peter is the vicar of Christ. So you've, you've heard that term before in, as we've talked about Catholicism. Uh, it was Pope Innocent that kind of coined that phrase. Uh, he has been established as mediator between God and man, below God but beyond man, less than God but more than man, who shall judge all and be judged by no one. That was, his, that was Innocent's view on the papacy. Innocent conceded that kings were given certain functions, but they derived their authority from the popes. Uh, As the moon only reflected the light of the sun, so royal power derived its dignity and splendor from from pontifical power. A gifted diplomat and politician, he often played the rulers of Europe off one another and gained more and more power for the papacy. So that, that's where we, any question, why don't I pause there and see if there's any questions on uh, the kind of the historical and political context between the, the popes and the emperors of Rome at this point. Because we're going to change our, our focus here and we're going to start talking about the, the Crusades in a minute. Any questions here? Yeah. Where does, uh, like, true faith stay alive in all this? Like, at what level in that hierarchy are, like, actual believers doing stuff? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it, uh, Often the uh, Middle Ages, because it's kind of seen as this dark era of history, can be kind of it can be kind of easy to say, well, were there even believers really around at this time? And um, the the reality is is that they're around. They're, it's kind of a it's kind of similar to some of the darker periods of of Israelite history, where it seems like nobody's believing in anything, and it seems like nobody's really following God. But the reality is is that God's preserving His people through the middle of it. Um, it's not. It's just not as clearly evident at the top echelons of the church here. 
right? You, where you have this corrupting influence where the church is becoming more and more institutional and more and more um, enmeshed in uh, politics and everything else, it can just be hard to see. So the church is here, um, and the true church is there. It's just down where the people are, if you will, and not so much up where the leaders are. And we'll start to see that at the end of the session when we start talking about the, the, um, the road towards the Reformation. We'll start to see some of those instincts or those uh, influences start to rise up and become more and more obvious and more plain. Yep. Yep. It's a good question. Other thoughts, questions? Eric. Yeah. Did Innocent III, where did he, did he back up any of his claims with the scripture at all, or was this all out of his own head? I don't, I actually don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I'm sure that, I'm sure that he had some biblical ideas and arguments that would that would support it i mean that the catholics you know the catholic thoughts and the you know catholic doctrine isn't uh, uh a doctrine that it, that they would come up with outside of the scriptures entirely they have scriptural basis for what they would say now we would say that they're wrong that their interpretation of the scriptures is incorrect uh, but i don't know specifically uh, what he would say that in terms of how he would tie his ideas to the scriptures that little quote at the end that you said we uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, that was the idea that Peter is the vicar of Christ. That's a, just a common term that the Catholics use to refer to the Pope. He's the vicar of Christ. Um, and uh, you hear it, especially you'll hear it around times when new popes are being uh, elected and stuff like that because all that stuff is in the news a lot. So, uh, so he's the, the successor of Peter and the vicar of Christ. Vicar is just a term, uh, a, a church ecclesiological term that just is like for a ruler. Correct, the first pope. Peter's the first pope. That's why it's all called the chair of Peter. That's that other, that's uh, the chair of Peter. And they, they, the Catholics would claim an unbroken succession of popes from Peter down to the current pope. Um, yeah, good questions. Good questions. All right, let's turn our attention to the Crusades. If you have more questions, we'll try to have time at the end. Turn our attention to the Crusades. Can you go to the next slide, please? Uh, so there were at least eight Crusades over the course of about 200 years. Uh, in terms of their main goals, pretty much all of them except for the first were failures. Um, the first Crusade was in uh, uh, 1009. Well, in 1009, the, the Fatman Caliph of Cairo, al-Hakim, who controlled Jerusalem at the time, ordered the destruction of all of the Christian holy places. Now, they were, subs- they were subsequently restored, uh, but Christians who traveled on pilgrimage to Jerusalem were beginning to be treated more and more harshly by the Muslims. In 1070, the Seljuk Turks conquered Jerusalem from the Fatimids, the Fatimids, uh, but they did not treat Christians any better. The Christian response came in 1095 when the Byzantine emperor asked for help and Pope Urban II declared that the Muslim dominance of the Middle East had to be ended. So Urban issues a call to arms in the, uh, in the cathedral at Clermont, France. And he says this, I, or rather the Lord, beseech you as Christ's heralds to publish this everywhere and to urge all people of whatever rank, foot soldiers, knights, poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the lands of our friends. I say, that, I say this to those who are present. It is also meant for those who are absent. Moreover, Christ commands it. The following year, a series of armies streamed eastward, and by 1098, Edsi, Antioch, and Jerusalem were captured and put under Christian rule. 
For roughly 60 years following this first crusade, various efforts were made by both Western and Eastern Christians to keep hold of Palestine and some of the surrounding areas areas against Muslim armies. Now, even though this crusade was successful and Christians controlled the Holy Land for a time, it would not last, and the rest of the wars failed to produce anything of real value. For example, the Fourth Crusade was ordered by Pope Innocent III to strike at the heart of Saladin, who was ruling at the time, the feared and respected Muslim leader. The the European crusaders were headed to Egypt. They were to head to Egypt, sorry. Uh, Instead, however, the crusaders attacked Constantinople, capturing it, massacred the population, and installed a Catholic king. The fact that Constantinople was the capital of the Byzantine Only 50 years, and Byzantine rule was eventually reestablished. But the whole incident was possibly the worst point in the history of deteriorating relations between the Western and Eastern churches. Several other crusades followed, uh, though with little success. The Holy Roman Emperor managed to gain Jerusalem in 1029 for the last time by negotiation, but it fell to the Muslims again uh, in, t- in 1244 and would remain in their possession until the 20th century. However, the crusading attitude uh, ingrained itself deep into the minds of Europeans. Here are a few legacies of the Crusades relevant to our discussion here. The Crusades actually served to enhance and cement the power and authority of the Pope. We talked a minute ago about Pope Innocent and how he was the most powerful. I mean, you can see that by the fact that he was able to motivate and push uh, the, 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 the generation of these Crusades and all of the Popes who were who were involved in the Crusades, were exercising a certain amount of power and looking to cement that power. Uh, secondly, one of, the out, one of the direct outflows of the, of the Crusades was actually the Inquisition. The Inquisition was, just a, was the Crusade ethos being turned inward against the Church. It empowered Church authorities to inquire into the orthodoxy of suspected heretics and to take coercive and often severe measures, including torture and execution, against anyone who could not prove their innocence. The Spanish Inquisition was perhaps the most severe and notorious example of this movement. And finally, and this is, this was one, this is, this is an outcome that was uh, uh, possibly good in some ways, finally they expo- the, the Crusades exposed Western Christendom to Muslim scholarship, which reintroduced Aristotelian philosophy into Western thinking. This strongly influenced the government and uh, educational philosophies of the Renaissance uh, and established some of what Renaissance culture became. And it was out of the Renaissance, or at least the early parts of the Renaissance, that the Reformation starts to come out and Reformation writers uh, like, and thinkers uh, started to come out as they read writers who were strongly influenced by Aristotle, uh, such as Thomas Aquinas. Now, there's a few movements in, in Christendom that I want to think through. So we're, as, we're, as we're coming down, you'll see that I've kind of set this up as a funnel. We're going, going from past history and kind of what's the culture doing and what's, what's going on politically. And we're kind of narrowing our focus down into what's happening inside of the church. Um, can you go to the next slide, please? Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of movements within the church that were happening at the time. We're going to talk about monasticism and we're going to talk about uh, scholasticism. So first, monasticism. While popes like Gregory and Innocent tried to reform from the top, um, most of the reform actually came from much lower in the monasteries. 
So monastic orders had a profound impact on the culture. The most important of these orders at the time were the Cluniacs, the Cistercians, and the Franciscans. Now, the Cluniacs were founded by Odo, the, Odo of Cluny. Cluny. He, was their, he was their main leader. It was founded in uh, 910 with a grant of property by a duke who was guilt-ridden for murdering his brother. They had a unique charter that kept them completely free from lay control, so there was no, there was no um, political power that, was, that, was, that held sway over what they decided to do, which was kind of unique for the time. Cluniac monasteries emphasized separation from, from the world, scholarship, and independence, and spread at a rapid pace throughout France. In what seems to be a perpetual theme, as they gained wealth, they soon fell into corruption, and calls for a new monastic order began. In 1098, the Cistercians were founded, in large part as the anti-Cluniacs. The Cistercians emphasized simplicity, poverty, and manual labor instead of scholarship, and private prayer over corporate prayer. Cistercians also expanded at an astounding rate. They went from about five monasteries in 1119 to 350 monasteries in 1050 to 647 houses by the time you get to 1250. So over a couple hundred years, they expanded very rapidly. Now finally, in 1209, so this would be kind of almost through the, through the, through the history of the Cistercians, Francis of Assisi, which is a name you probably are familiar with, Francis of Assisi founded the Franciscans, who took Cister- uh, sorry, Cistercian frugality one step further by renouncing all worldly possessions. Uh, his order also experienced rapid growth, as new monks responded to, this, to his emphasis on God's goodness and mercy and Christ's perfect humanity. As the Franciscans grew, Francis himself eventually renounced control of the order and went into seclusion. Uh, Francis is the one who, who allegedly said the quote about preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. Uh, but this is almost certainly legendary. The second movement that I wanted to go over is scholasticism. And this is one where we're going to start to see some connection to uh, a, a period of history that we're possibly more familiar with in the Reformation. So scholasticism. Several historical streams had converged that made the conditions ripe for the Reformation of the 16th century. Along with moral decline of the papacy uh, the evol- and, and, and the evolving political atmosphere in Europe, the popularity of monasticism and an outgrowth of an associated uh, intellectual movement, scholasticism, also contributed to the roots of the, of the Reformation. Scholasticism at its heart looks back to classical Greek and Roman texts, principally Plato and Aristotle, uh, who used ra- uh, rational principles of inquiry to reach conclusions about the world, and especially the relationship of faith and reason. Uh, in one historical irony, Crusaders had encountered the work of Muslim scholars and studied Aristotle and brought his recovered learning back to Europe, leading to the rise of the modern university. It also sets in motion uh, going back to the sources, or ad fontes, which is exactly what triggered the Reformation as Luther began studying Romans for himself. Uh, Next slide, please. One of the most important of the scholastics was Anselm. He lived from 1033 to 1109. Anselm initially had tried to join a monastery at 15, but was refused by his father, and it wasn't until age 27 that he made it in, after a period that included wandering over the Alps. Uh, uh, later in life, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, 
Uh, he was an able administrator and a skilled theologian, strongly influenced by Plato, and some held that faith must inform reason. His motto was faith seeking understanding, which for him means an active love of God, seeking a deeper knowledge of God. I believe in order that I may understand, he declared. Anselm made uh, these important contributions to the study of theology. Uh, Anselm is the the guy who put together the ontological or cosmological argument for the existence of God. As Anselm put it, God is that which no greater can be conceived. Right? That than which no greater can be conceived. I know that's that's a bit of a confusing quote, but... And it means essentially this. Um, If God, if there is something that can be conceived of that is greater than God, then that thing is really God. So if we can conceive of God and it's good that something is real, then then God must be a real thing and something we should follow. So uh, as a general rule, he distrusted human senses and rather urged uh, taking the, uh, the presupposition of God's existence as a foundation for studying in other realms. So he wanted to see us take God first and draw out of that understanding knowledge about other things. Uh, perhaps his greatest work is a book called Why, Why God Became Man, Cur Deus Homo is the, is the Latin title, in which he connected Christ's incarnation with his atoning death. Anselm emphasized that our sin had so offended a perfectly holy God that no human effort could ever pay for our penalty. Paid by the death on the cross of the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. So the God, why the God-man was his question. All right, next slide. Uh, scholasticism reached its peak, however, in the, in the life of Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas was born to a wealthy Italian family in 1225. The young Thomas soon displayed a precocious gift for learning and a desire to enter a Dominican monastery. Uh, His horrified family tried to prevent him by tempting him with a prostitute, kidnapping him, and even offering to purchase the position of Archbishop of Naples to keep him out of the monastery. None of this availed, and Thomas followed his calling. Aquinas used Aristotelian philosophy to discuss the truths of Christianity. Unlike Anselm, Aquinas often took the human senses and reason as a starting point. So he he kind of flipped things around from what Anselm had done. Uh, and believed that by working backwards from that backwards from reason, much could be discovered about God. His great work is called the Summa Theologica, uh, 30 very dry volumes in which arguments are presented, knocked down with counterarguments, then those counterarguments are refuted, and then those counterarguments are refuted, and so on. 30, 30 whole volumes of this. But, uh, even though that's very difficult to read, because of his deep and careful thinking, he is really second only to Augustine for his theological importance in pre-Reformation literature. Today, he's regarded by the Roman Catholic Church as their greatest thinker and theologian. Aquinas made these important contributions to the study of theology. He came up with the first cause argument for the existence of God. So logically, what he said is that logically, everything must be caused by a, some previous thing. Uh, think of the dilemma of the chicken and the egg. Which one of them came first? Uh, In his argument, at some point, we must concede that an outside entity created one of them. Um, And this this leads to God as the prime mover or first cause, because God is the eternal being. He's the uncaused cause, is the the phrase that he would often use. Uh, So he's the first cause behind everything else in existence. 
Uh, he believed that both revelation and nature were made by the same God. Faith and reason were therefore in no way contradictory to one another. Uh, he also contributed uh, a good deal of literature uh, on the notion of natural law, uh, which holds that moral rules instituted by God can be known by human reason without special revelation and obeyed with, uh, without special grace. However, his thoughts here go well beyond what is taught in Romans 1, 19 through 20, uh, and what that passage teaches about what can be known from, uh, about God from creation. His teaching that God can truly be known through reason, ends up providing a framework for works righteousness and an approach to life that minimizes our need for grace. Over time, Aquinas' optimism about human reason and human nature was developed by subsequent theologians into the idea of justification by grace through man's cooperation with God. Uh, This semi-Pelagianism, which we we talked about Pelagianism in the last couple of weeks, this semi-Pelagianism was reasserting itself And after the Reformation, even, we'll start to see this come back in uh, Protestant circles in the teachings of Jacob Arminius. All right, Uh, questions there. We're at a good breaking point to take a couple couple of questions. Does the Catholic Church now have a... Did they choose a side with respect to whether... Kind of uh, to start with the senses, or to start with the presupposition of God's existence. I actually don't know the answer to that question. I mean, certainly, you certainly have an Anselm and and um, uh, whoever I was just talking to, Aquinas. Um, you certainly have strong themes of both of them, and they would both, and the Catholic Church would consider both of them very important theologians in their in their tradition, right? So, but I don't know if they ever came down to which one of those guys was right on that point. I, don't, I actually don't know. So that quote, um, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words, did you say that that actually, what legendary meaning it wasn't actually said by We don't really know. Okay. We don't really know. It's, it's probably consistent with, with his overarching uh, you know, approach to life. Um, you know, and it's, it's a little bit consistent with monastic orders as well. Um, you know, the idea is that actions speak stronger than words, and so you're separating yourself from the world and that kind of a thing. But, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to shift our, our uh, attention to the, 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 what we might call the prototypical reformers. Next week, we're going to start talking about the Reformation proper. Um, but they didn't start, they actually, the, the, you know, Luther and Calvin didn't actually start the Reformation in many ways, even though they were the, the main movers of, the, of, the, of the, the movement, if you will, that we call the Reformation. There were thinkers that came before them. So, uh, before, so before we can go there, we need to talk about a few men who laid the foundation for Luther and Calvin. Uh, in Worms, Germany, where Luther stood trial, there's a memorial to Luther that was put up in the mid-19th century. And at the base of that statue, there are four figures, all of whom were the forerunners of the Reformation. You have Peter Waldo, John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, and the more, excu- the more obscure, Girolamo uh, Savarola. Uh, we're going to look at three of these guys now as we close out our session. We're going to look at Waldo, Wycliffe, and Hus. So can you go to the next slide for me? Uh, Peter Waldo. In the 12th century in southern France, yeah, I, I, I tried to search for a picture of the guy, and what do you think came up, right? 
<laughs> in the 12th century in southern France, a merchant named Peter Waldo gave everything he had to the poor and began preaching publicly against both the immorality and the bad doctrines of the church, especially the doctrines of transubstantiation, which is that idea that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. Uh, he, was, he was teaching against that, and he was teaching against the idea of purgatory. Uh, Peter Waldo himself is a bit difficult to nail down historically, but his, fo- his followers, called the Waldensians, developed, a very, developed very clear doctrines in the 13th and 14th centuries that later Protestants, uh, Protestant reformers would pick up on. Uh, these included things like the idea that Scripture alone is the source of authority both in the church and for the believer. Uh, this includes the idea that the Bible should be in the common language, you see that especially when we get to, to John Wycliffe in a second. Um, and the idea that vol- uh, voluntarily giving to the poor, instead of giving doing that uh, as an expectation or a way of paying for sin. Um, the Waldensian movement spread across southern France and northeastern, northwestern Italy, uh, despite cruel persecution on the part of the both, both the church and the state. Church and the state did not like these guys because they were, they were trying to go and they were kicking against the goads of what was commonly accepted theologically and socially at the time. Next slide, please. Uh, late in the 14th century, an Oxford professor and uh, English government official named John Wycliffe grew frustrated with the divisions in the papacy, which at the time was contested by two rival popes. Uh, Wycliffe argued that since God ordains authority... Those in leadership should follow the example of Christ as humble servants, not as greedy overlords. Furthermore, influenced by reading Augustine, Wycliffe held that Christ's true church is not the Pope and his hierarchy. Rather, the real body of Christ consists of those elected by God unto salvation. You can hear that that very um, Augustinian idea of those who are elected by God unto salvation. Uh, His teaching had powerful implications. First, Wycliffe came to believe that the Pope and many other of the church leaders were probably reprobate, unbelievers. Uh, Second, because all true believers comprise the church, it followed that they should be able to read the Bible in their own language, to know God's will for themselves and for the church. Now, after he died, he worked on Bible translation and was in trouble for that over the course of his life, but that was actually finished after he died, when Wycliffe's followers completed the translation of the Bible into English. Uh, Finally, Wycliffe declared transubstantiation and communion to be false. Transubstantiation, which had only been declared an official doctrine of the church in the 13th century. Remember, we're in the 14th now, or 14th. um, Held that the bread and wine became uh, transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Wycliffe found this irrational and unbiblical. And while he did hold that Christ was physically present in the elements, the elements also retained their natural substance of bread and wine. Uh, Though not formally excommunicated, Wycliffe soon found himself out of favor with church authorities, and he retired to the margins of English society. His followers, known as Lollards, uh, eagerly began spreading his teaching, as well as copies of English Bibles throughout the land. Though many Lollards were put put to death for their beliefs, they took Wycliffe's writings as far as Bohemia, or present-day Czechoslovakia, and Wycliffe has been called by many the morning star of the Reformation. By the way, one of the things you see in here is, the, is the, not only the translation of the Bible into English, but I mentioned earlier 
you know, what was happening in, this, in the very tail end of, the, Reform, of the, the late Middle Ages. And one of the things that powerfully came in was the invention of the printing press. The, 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 the timing of that is crucial as, it, as it's coming in just at the beginnings of these Reformation ideas. And you have, starting that, getting the, getting the Bible, the scriptures, into lots of people's hands who had never had their own copies before. And it's the, the invention of the printing press that made that, that possible. Next slide, please. Uh, finally, we're going to talk about uh, Jan Hus. Uh, Wycliffe's teaching found an eager uh, audience in a Bohemian priest uh, named John Hus, who in, 12, in 1402 became rector of the University of Prague. Uh, Hus's original concern was moral. Disgusted by the, by the degenerate church authorities, he sought to restore Christian leadership to its former ideals. Influenced by Wycliffe, Hus came to believe that only God's elect people comprised the true universal church, and the Bible provided the supreme authority by which all Christians are to be guided and judged, including the Pope. Hus also warned uh, his people against the widespread superstitions of the day, worshiping of images and relics, uh, and the misplaced belief in false miracles. About this time, Pope John XXIII, hoping to expand his power, proclaimed a crusade against Naples. Typically, crusades were targeted on the Holy Land. This was a crusade focused in Europe, um, and decided to finance it by selling indulgences. Uh, Hus believed that only God could forgive sins and that attempting to profit off God's prerogative was profoundly wrong. Indulgences, by the way, were the practice in in the Catholic Church of paying the church and therefore lessening somebody's time in purgatory. That was the the practice of of selling indulgences and what their purpose was. Uh, He protested the Pope's cynical move, and in response, the Pope excommunicated Hus. A A sympathetic emperor invited Hus to defend himself before the upcoming Council of Constance, uh, but du- the duplicitous Pope John tricked Hus and had him burned at the stake in 1415 at the council when Hus refused to recant his beliefs. As he was tied to the stake, Hus pr- prayed aloud, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I pa- patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. After he died, Hus's outraged followers vowed to carry on his legacy, and despite crusade after crusade sent against them by the Pope, Pockets of Hussites persisted throughout Europe for the next century until the actions of an obscure German monk brought them new hope, that that German monk being Martin Luther. Well, that's as far as we're going to be able to go for today. Any questions on the the early parts of the Reformation? Yeah, go ahead. The, yeah, the, the only one that probably had a real good justification was the first one. first one was done, you, you recall I said the first one was done in response to a, a plea from the Byzantine emperor for help uh, against, the, against the, the Muslim invasions that were happening. And so that one, and that was also the successful one, you know, in, in any sense, right? So they were actually able to help the, the Byzantine emperor and they, ca- and they captured, um, they captured uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Uh, the rest of them, um, you know, exactly how justified they were. I didn't do a lot of research into, into each one of them to know what the particular motivating force was behind them. But a lot of them were about claiming power, about, um, you know, uh, 
you know, having some vague sense of recapturing the Holy Land, uh, but really, in general, were not uh, things to be emulated. And you see that especially as you look at the way um, the outworkings of the, of the Crusades internally uh, with things like the, the Inquisition and stuff like that. They were, they were not, generally speaking, a good movement and not healthy for the church. Yeah. Now, other questions about anything we've talked about today, not just the, the last section? When you, the, even the first crusade, when you think of that, that justification as much as, as it, it, it's, it feels justified only so far as the, the church has temporal power. Well, sure, right? yes. Within Fair that enough. framework, Fair actually, enough. when Christendom actually is a political entity, you can see it moving, you can see it operating as a political entity. That's a little divorced from the question of, is that an appropriate framework? Correct. So, Correct. Yes, and that—that's an excellent point. Yes, I mean, in, in this time, you—you you, you do see the popes functioning as political authority, very much so, which is not where the church needs is to be. Right? That was never the intention. We, at the time that Christ came, and we we moved away from this idea of the the nation, the physical nation or political power being tied up with. Uh, the, with religion and faith, right? So now that we've moved away from that, now the, the Catholic Church, and you see it even today in the Catholic Church, where there's lots of, of tiebacks to w- the way things worked in the Old Testament that needed to be set aside with the, with the coming of Christ. And you do see in the, pow- in the power of the popes and the desire of the popes to wield political authority this desire to hold on to that, which was which was not appropriate. So yes, biblical justification wasn't really there. This was a the, the justification that was in any sense good about the first crusade would have been a political justification in the sense that it was right to respond to the plea for help uh, on the part of the of the of the Byzantine Empire uh, against the uh, against Muslim invaders. That was a good and just impulse, uh, but not necessarily the place of the church to be the the mover and shaker there. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, good, good point. All right, well, we're going to have to close it down there. Why don't I pray for us as we close? And if you have other questions, you can certainly talk to me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this uh, lesson in, in our history and, our, and, and more revelations about our story. Um, we do ask that you would help us to learn lessons well uh, from the history. Um, Lord, we, we, as we look now to worshiping you together as a body in our church service, we ask for your blessing. Uh, we ask for uh, true hearts to worship you in, in, in truth and faith. Thank you for what you have given to us in Christ. We praise you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.